0: Thank you for listening to the Grace Church of Mabton podcast. This week's sermon by Pastor Adam Copenhaver is the second in the series, Flourishing, God's Design for Gender and Sexuality. This week's sermon covers the issues of sin and corruption and is based on the passage Genesis 3. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Everett, for reading our text. And today we have our second sermon in this six-week series we're doing on flourishing, a biblical Christian view of gender and sexuality. And we're piecing together, we're building together what God's word says about how God has designed us as humans to flourish, to live life fully with all the blessings of God and fullness of peace and joy. And our goal, we said last week in the first sermon, our goal is to sing a better song as Christians the Bible gives to us a song, a better song of gender and sexuality, one that truly leads to flourishing. And so we want to know that song, we want to learn to sing that song. So last week, I told you in the first sermon, we will have six sermons on this topic. And these six sermons are all interconnected, they build one upon the other. And so if you miss one, you can find it online. If you need help with that, let me know. We can get you help finding the sermons online so you can keep up with the series if you miss a week along the way. But the first three of the six sermons are foundational. So we're talking about creation, today's sin, and then redemption. And then the last three will get a little more direct and practical as we talk about sexual ethics and homosexuality and gender identity. Okay, so we're in the foundational part right now. We had last week the first sermon where we talked about creation. We talked about how a key part of our identity as humans is that we are created by God. God is the creator. We are his creation. We're created in his image. So if we want to flourish as humans, we need to know how it is that God the creator has designed us, how he designed for us to function and work so that we can learn to live within his design because his design is for us to flourish. So that was last week. And we also talked last week about how this gives us a different approach to the issue, a different perspective than what our world has right now and what our world is saying about gender and sexuality. Our world is saying if we want to find our identity, we want to figure out who I am and how I ought to live in order to flourish, our world is saying we need to look not outward to God, to his word, but we need to look inward into our own hearts and there we will find the answer to who am i and how should i then live. And so we said that our approach a christian approach is a better song. Why is that a better song? Well, one of the reasons that we're going to talk to or talk about today is because of the condition of our hearts. Why not look into our hearts? to determine who I am and how I ought to live. What we're going to see today is because the problem with that approach is our hearts are corrupted by sin. And so that's, that's our topic, our theme today, sin. What has sin done to our hearts that I, because of sin, I am completely corrupted by sin? Okay, so here's our outline for today. First, we're going to talk about sin itself in Genesis chapter three. Then second, we'll talk about the curse that God puts on creation in Genesis chapter 3 as a result of sin. And then then, third, we'll talk about corruption. What are the implications of sin and the curse for our own hearts and how sin has spoiled our hearts? And then fourth and finally, we'll talk about the implications of all of this for our topic of gender and sexuality. So that's our outline for today. So first point, we're going to talk about sin now. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Okay, So last week we talked about the first two chapters of Genesis, how God created the heavens and the earth. He organized it, he made it all work, he filled it up with life, he put the first man, the first woman into the Garden of Eden. It was that luscious garden where they could flourish, overflowing with food and water. And if we go back to chapter 2, in verses 16 and 17... God gave to the first man and woman in this garden, he gave them great freedom with one itsy bitsy little restriction. So in verse 16, this is of Genesis chapter two, we read in verse 16, chapter two, we read, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but verse 17 of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Great freedom. You are free to eat of all of this beautiful fruit, God says, except one tree. This one tree will be the boundary between good and evil. If you cross the line and eat of this tree, you've crossed over to evil. Don't eat from this tree. Well, how long do you suppose they lasted? It was only about a month ago now that I walked into, I was at a a retreat center, and I walked into the bathroom, and there was a sign on the wall kind of down by the floor in a really odd spot that drew my eye, and this sign said in big red letters, do not touch valve, and then there was a little valve right under the sign. Now, I could have gone in and out of this bathroom for 100 years, and I never would have touched that valve. But you put a sign there, and guess what I did? I touched the valve, and I took a picture touching the valve. I was so proud of myself that I touched the valve. I have a picture of my finger on a valve with a sign saying, do not touch valve. Okay, So God says, don't eat of this tree. What is it in their human nature? right? In chapter 3, along comes the sneaky serpent, and he strikes up a conversation with the woman, and he begins to challenge God. He sneaks in this assumption, hey, we can question God's word here. So he says in verse one, the serpent says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He misrepresents God's command, makes God out to be far more restrictive than God was and or is and the woman she engages in this conversation and enters into this conversation of judgment of God and his word maybe God didn't really say this but God did say that maybe God was wrong maybe we won't surely die and down in verse 5 the serpent eventually he says well here's the reality according to the serpent God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's been holding out on you, the serpent says, denying you the best things in life. He's set forth this path for you that's so restrictive, so cruel. Here's a path for you, the serpent says, where your eyes can be opened where you can be set free from God, where you can determine for yourself what is good and evil rather than letting God choose for you. In a way, what the serpent is saying is here's a better path of flourishing for you, an alternative path. And so now this woman, she looks at the fruit and instead of thinking of God's command, And seeing how this would lead to evil and bring about certain death. Instead, she sees, oh, that fruit does look tasty. It looks so nice and good. And she decides, you know what? I think I know better what is good for me than God does. She eats the fruit. And by the way, she was not alone. Who's standing right there with her, thinking the same thoughts right alongside her and doing the same thing right there with her? It is... The man, he eats as well. It's the first act of sin in all of creation. And on the one hand, like a lot of sin, we look at this and on the one hand, we think it's just, it's such a simple little action. Just a little boo-boo here, a little mistake eating the fruit. What's, what's the big deal? But in reality, this small act, this little action of sin was outright rebellion against the creator. It was a rejection of God as God. It was pride saying, I know better than God who created me what is good for me. It was a rejection of God's goodness, of his character, of his truthfulness. It's mutiny by creature against the creator. It's a horrific and wicked and utterly evil crime against God in one little act, eating the fruit. And this rebellion against God has consequences. And so this takes us to our second point, the curse. The curse, and this is now we're thinking of the rest of chapter three. What are the consequences now? Well, there are immediate consequences for the first man and woman. And verse seven, their eyes are opened and they experience shame for the first time. They feel guilty and exposed. So they make clothes to hide themselves from one another. And then in verse eight, when they hear the Lord himself come walking through the garden, they hide from the Lord. Their relationships are now fractured. Their relationship with one another and their relationship with God, they're no longer at peace. There's no longer joy. There's no longer flourishing. Now they have conflict in their relationship with each other and with God. And when God calls out to them in the garden, they jump right into the blame game and begin blaming one another. The man says, it's the woman that you created. She's the reason why I ate the fruit. It's her fault, God. And really it's kind of your fault because if you hadn't created her, she wouldn't have been here to make me eat the fruit. So the man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. The serpent tricked me into eating. But the Lord knows the truth. They're all guilty. They've all rebelled against him. And as a result, God puts all of creation under a curse. As we work through chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15, God curses the serpent, that the serpent now will continue to tempt humans, to strike at humans. He'll be perpetuating sin and death, but ultimately the serpent himself will be destroyed. In verse 16, God curses the woman. He says, okay, woman, now your work that I've designed for you to do of bringing life into the world of having children will be filled with pain. And not only will there be pain in childbearing, but you'll also have conflict in your marriage as pride will cause you to want to rule over your husband and the husband will want to rule over the wife and there's going to be problems in your home and your household. In verse 17, God curses the man and all the earth. Now the land will only produce food through great pain and toil. It was going to be easy before this. The Garden of Eden was pretty luscious. Taking care of the garden was not a hard task. Now it's all going to be dysfunctional. Now you're stuck trying to grow food out in the desert. None of you know what that's like, right? Trying to grow a crop in the desert. And then worst of all, In verses 22 through 24, God drives them out of the Garden of Eden, banishes them from the garden so they will not be able to eat from the tree of life and live forever. They're cut off from life, cut off from eternal life. They're doomed to death. So this is the curse that God puts on all of creation. A curse of death over all creation. And this is why still today, death is at work in the world all around us. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 says, All of creation has been groaning under the curse of death from that day in Genesis 3 until the present day. It's in pain. Creation is in pain and groaning, Romans 8 says, like a woman giving birth. Creation, the world around us, is crying out that this hurts. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Our world is, it's kind of like in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know that story, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where it's always winter, but never Christmas. Always winter, but never Christmas. It's a bleak place, our world, full of rebellion against the Creator. Everything is cursed by death. All around us, everything grows old and falls apart. Things decay. Things break down. Plants wither and die. Animals grow old and die. Humans get sick, grow old, and die. Everything is broken and falling apart, cursed by death. This is the nature of the world. So it's a widespread problem Sin and the curse that's brought into the world. It's a widespread problem. It affects every single person in all of creation. But it's not just a widespread problem, it's also a very personal problem. Because sin and death are also at work inside of us, in our hearts. And this takes us now to our third point: corruption. Corruption. What does sin do inside of us to our hearts? Again, it seems like such a simple act. All she did was took a bite of the fruit. What has this rebellion done? Well, it turns out that this rebellion is is corrosive. It it corrupts the entire human heart. It's like this glass of milk we have sitting... I don't even know if you can call this milk anymore. It's like this glass of whatever it is we have sitting up here, the spoiled milk that's turned. The whole thing has gone bad. Same thing has happened to our hearts. And so if we follow the story coming out of Genesis 3 and look at what happens next, we can see how sin and rebellion works its way deeper and deeper into the human heart. When we get to Genesis chapter 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel, the sons of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. Now we have Cain and Abel, their brothers. But these brothers don't get along. They resent one another. Cain is envious of of Abel, resents him. And so what does Cain do? He murders his brother. In just one chapter of Scripture, one generation, we've gone from taking a bite of fruit to murdering your own brother. And so God drives Cain even further outside, Scripture says, out into the desert to be even closer to death. Well, in the end of Genesis chapter 4, Cain finds a wife. And just five generations later, Cain has children and a few generations come and go. Five generations later, Cain has a descendant named Lamech. And Lamech is so rebellious, this is in the end of Genesis chapter 4, that Lamech takes two wives rather than one like God designed. It's selfish, it's a violation of God's creation, his design. And then in verse 23 of chapter 4, Lamech boasts about murdering a man who had struck him. And his boast in chapter four, verse 27 is, if Cain's revenge was sevenfold, then Lamech's my revenge is 77-fold. Lamech is proud to say that my anger and violence is 11 times that of Cain. Sin is multiplying, growing deeper in the heart. A few more generations go by and we reach chapter 6 of Genesis. We're only in chapter 6 in the Bible here. And in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, here's what we read, Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you catch the emphasis there? Every intention of the thoughts of mankind's heart was only evil continually. It's a broad statement of judgment from God who sees the heart saying every intention, every desire of mankind is only evil all the time. So, what does God do in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8? He sends a flood. We'll start over, we'll pass judgment, we'll wipe out the world, except for the few righteous people, Noah and a couple of his family members, and we'll start over with a new new line of humanity. Does that solve the problem, though? No, by the time Noah's an old man, he's getting drunk, he's embarrassing himself sexually. We get to Genesis chapter 11, and we have humankind now setting out to build a tower up into the heavens thinking we'll build a tower so tall, we'll climb up into the heavens and we'll make ourselves into gods, the Tower of Babel, so God scatters them. By the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, really even just to the middle of the book of Genesis, you'll find lying, rape, homosexuality, murder, incest, and on and on it goes. In fact, I remember the phone call where a parent called me many years ago now and said, you know, my my son who's learned how to read, picked up his Bible and started reading, and he's made it to about chapter 15 of the book of Genesis, and I had to take it away from him because of all the questions he's asking me. What's homosexuality? What's rape? What's murder? All all these things that have come up already in the book of Genesis. Sin corrupts the heart completely. Completely. Sin multiplies in our hearts like a rabbit farm. Or as one person has said, sin is like spiritual AIDS. AIDS is a disease, you know, that attacks the immune system so that we're now no longer able to fight off other diseases. Sin does the same to our hearts. It makes us weak and vulnerable to more and more sin. Sin multiplies sins. So whenever scripture discusses the condition of our hearts apart from Christ, it's always the same. Our hearts are completely corrupted by sin. And I'm going to run through some Bible passages here, and you can write these down if you want. What does the Bible then say about our hearts? Here's some passages. Psalm chapter 51, verse 5. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Our hearts are corrupted by sin from the first moment of life from when we were even conceived. Isaiah chapter 64 verse six says, we're so corrupted by sin that even our righteous deeds are all polluted like a polluted garment. We can't do anything righteous. It's all polluted by sin. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things And desperately sick, who can understand it? The heart is so deceitful, so desperately sick that we can't even understand our own hearts. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, We are slaves to sin. In Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, Jesus describes what it is that comes out of our hearts. And he says, the real problem we have as humans is not the stuff out there that impacts us. It's what's in our hearts that comes out of us. And what comes out of our hearts, here's the list Jesus gives. Here's what comes out of your heart. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, Jesus says, from in your heart and my heart. Are you depressed yet? Feeling good about your heart? (laughs) Keep going. Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 20 says, there is no one who does good. We've all sinned and gone astray, and all our paths are sinful and lead to ruin and misery. That's in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 7 verse 18 says sin dwells within us so that we are incapable of doing right even when we want to. Romans chapter 8 verse 8 says we are incapable of pleasing God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says we are incapable of understanding spiritual things because our hearts are so blinded by sin. Similarly, Titus 1.15 says our minds and our consciences are are defiled by sin, so that nothing we do is pure, but we are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. James chapter one, verse thirteen, says, Why is it that we are tempted into sin? James one thirteen says, It's because of our own desires from within. It's our hearts that tempt and entice us. And the desires of our hearts give birth to sin. And it's that sin that then leads us to destruction and death. But it starts in the heart. We could go on and on and on with passages like this from Scripture. I kind of already have, but there's plenty more. The overwhelming message of Scripture that apart from Christ, our hearts are completely corrupted by sin. On the inside, we have curdled milk. We're rotten to the core. Now, a point of clarity here as we work this out a little bit. This does not necessarily mean that we are always as evil as we could possibly be. We can step back and we can all think of unbelievers who are decent human beings, who do good things, who love their families, who are kind and generous and respectful. We can look at our own lives and and see, but I'm not always as evil and rotten as I could possibly be. I mean, I haven't always murdered people when I've wanted to or had the opportunity. There's been some restraint here somewhere. And this is because of what we call God's common grace. His common grace, that God in his grace Does and has put things into our lives and into our world that, in some way or another, restrain our worst inclinations of our heart. He gives us a conscience, He gives to us an internal sense of right and wrong, He gives to us government and systems of justice and of laws, and so on. And so, we're not always as evil as we could possibly be in every situation. But when we think of the heart and of what we mean by corruption, what we're saying, this is, this is the words of John Calvin. John Calvin says, our hearts are corrupted, which means our hearts are a fountain of sin. Our hearts are a fountain of sin that we, what our hearts are doing is just producing, cranking out sin like a fountain or a factory. This means that even when our hearts are, Love something that is good, even when we desire something that is good, we still mess it up. Saint Augustine is—he calls this—he talks about the condition of our hearts and the corruption of our hearts. He he describes it as disordered loves. It's from Saint Augustine, way back in the fourth century. He says our loves are disordered. It's not that we don't have love and some good things in our heart; it's that our loves are all out of out of place. So we love the wrong things too much and we love the right things too little. And then we corrupt the very things that we love because our desires are not restrained and because of the sin that our hearts are pouring out. It's kind of like, have any of you read the book Of Mice and Men? Did you read that in high school or kind of remember this story where there's this character Lenny who's this really strong as an ox kind of guy but kind of simple-minded but he loves to touch soft things and so he holds like a bunny or a puppy, but his, his love and his strength is so unrestrained that he ends up crushing them to death and killing the very things he loves. This is kind of what St. Augustine is saying about our hearts, that even when we love a good thing, our hearts are so corrupted that we love it too much and in the wrong way and it ends up becoming destructive. We love God too little. We love other people too much or not enough. We love food, but we love food so much that we become gluttons and then we destroy our own health. We love material things in the world, but we come to love them too much and we end up stealing or deceiving to get them or becoming workaholics and harming our families and our love for material things. We love pleasure so much And then we pursue pleasure in a substance like alcohol or drugs and we become addicts to it and we destroy ourselves and our loved ones. We can give example after example like this. Our hearts are corrupted, a fountain of sins. Our desires, our loves are all out of order. And so even when we think we've stumbled upon loving a good thing, we love it in all the wrong ways. We love it in excess. We, We pollute everything we touch we have a serious, serious problem. And the heart of our problem is our hearts. The problem is in here, inside me. It's not a problem out there, first and foremost. It's not that I'm a victim of other people and of their sin, though that does happen as well. The problem at its core is my heart My heart is corrupt. None of us escapes the corruption. It's easy to hear a message like this and to look at others and to think, oh, they really need to hear this message because look how corrupt their hearts are. But in reality, this is a message that should turn us inward to look at our own hearts and to be honest with ourselves. What is the condition of my heart? My heart is corrupt. I am every bit as corrupt in my heart as anyone else is. Now my heart that's a fountain of sin, it may be pouring out different kinds of sins than your heart or someone else's hearts, maybe in different ways and in different degrees, but I'm just as corrupt. We're all corrupt together. So we go back to that key question of identity that we talked about last week. Who am I? How do we answer the who am I question? From scripture. Well, last week we saw, yeah, we can say, I am created by God in His image. I'm designed by God to flourish, to walk in His paths, to thrive in fullness of life. Oh, that's all happy, happy. Good, good stuff. Now we have to say, that, that was good stuff in Genesis 1 and 2. Now we get to Genesis 3 and on. Now we have to say, Who am I? I am a sinner. And what does that mean? It means I am completely corrupted by sin to the very core. My heart is corrupt. My desires are disordered. My loves are dysfunctional. I am a fountain spewing evil and polluting everything around me. My heart is corrupted by sin. And this takes us now to our fourth point, the implications. Implications. Now, the implications are Very important. Again, these sermons, these first three sermons, of which today is the second, these are intended to be foundational sermons. We're building here. We're building a picture, a Christian vision here that will lead us into talking specifically about some things related to gender and sexuality. But as we think about corruption, the corruption of our hearts, here are four implications for us to kind of get the wheels turning, how does this connect then to the theme, gender and sexuality? Four implications of corruption for us to think about today. Here's the first implication. And I hope we can can really think this through, okay? Because I find this to be very, very helpful, very profound. First implication. We can affirm the sincerity of people's feelings and desires of their heart. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that, okay? We can affirm the sincerity of people who are describing what they think, what they feel, what they desire in their heart. We talked last week about how in our world, in our culture today, the message is that we should look inside ourselves to determine who we are, who am I, based on the feelings, desires, attractions, so on in my heart, And sometimes, perhaps, we find it hard to believe that when somebody says, well, this is what I feel in my heart, we find it hard to believe that somebody could really feel that way. When a wife says, well, you know, I think I've fallen out of love with my husband. I no longer have any desire for him. When a young man says, I'm looking in my heart and I think I'm attracted to other men rather than to women. When, in fact, they might even say, I think my heart is oriented that way. When a woman says, I'm looking on the inside and I think I'm actually a man down in there, trapped in the wrong body. The more we understand what the Bible says about the corruption of our hearts and how deep the corruption goes, the more we can affirm the sincerity of these kinds of feelings. In other words, these types of desires may run so deeply in the heart. If we understand corruption, how deep it goes, these desires may run so deeply that they really could be described as an orientation, as dysphoria. and Some of the words that we'll talk about in weeks to come. If anything, at times, it seems to me at least, that as Christians, sometimes we are actually the ones who are less sincere about our hearts than people in the world are. Because we don't want everyone else to know what we really think and feel down in here and how corrupt it all is because we're ashamed by it. But the world around us is leading the way in sincerity, opening up the door saying, here's what's in my heart, openly and shamelessly saying what they really feel. And so, in a way, we can almost applaud our world today for their courage in this regard, for their willingness to express what is truly deep down in their hearts. Maybe we as Christians could learn something about being a little more authentic in this way. This also helps us as Christians when somebody is expressing, here's what I feel inside of me, rather than judging someone who has the courage to openly share what is in their hearts, maybe we can have compassion on them and understand that they may be very sincerely describing what's going on on the inside. Maybe we can be good listeners even. So we can affirm, this is the first implication, we can affirm the sincerity, people's feelings and desires of their heart. This takes us to our second point then, our second implication, Second implication, that though others may be sincere in what they're sharing in their hearts, we nevertheless, there's a second implication, we should not trust our hearts. We should not trust our hearts. Again, this is the overwhelming message of scripture, that our hearts are corrupt. Our hearts are deceived. We should not trust our hearts. Our hearts lead us into sin. They lead us into paths of destruction, away from flourishing. A few years ago, there were two professors who wrote a book. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. What a great title, The Coddling of the American Mind. These are not Christians. These are two professors who are analyzing what is wrong with how Americans think today. And in this book, they describe three great, what they call great untruths. Three great untruths that are accepted as truth in our world today. And the first and greatest untruth that people believe to be true in our world, they say, is that you should trust your feelings. That's the greatest untruth, the greatest lie that our world tells us to believe today, they say, that you should trust your feelings. And actually, the professors say, why do we call it the greatest untruth? Because throughout all of history, all of humankind has always said, you should not trust your feelings. This is a novel thing in our world today that you should trust your feelings. And further, these professors say not only that, but even today, psychologists and mental health professionals warn against trusting your feelings in all kinds of different ways because our feelings often lead us astray and into destruction. Our fears are often irrational. What if we always followed our fears What if we never restrained our anger, but always followed our anger? What if we let our feelings of anxiety control us? Or if we followed our feelings of depression? Isn't that where suicide comes from? It's the greatest untruth, they say, that our world accepts as truth, that we should trust our feelings. And if they can recognize this without any kind of biblical background, How much more for us as Christians when we understand the corruption of the heart? Why would you ever trust your heart? C.S. Lewis, maybe you know him, a Christian author, writing about 75 years ago now or so. C.S. Lewis observes that we should not trust our hearts. And he says, notice how in, in so many areas of life, we all recognize and agree that you should restrain your desires, that the best thing to do is to restrain your desires. We all know that you should restrain your greed or you'll end up stealing from others. We all know that we should restrain our desire for food or we'll become gluttons. We all know we should restrain our desire for revenge or we'll become murderers and so on. Look at all these categories, he says, where we all know the best way to live is to restrain your desires to say no to your heart. And then he asks this question, very insightful, 75 years ago he says, why then do we think our sexual desires should be trusted? As if our sexual desires will lead us to flourishing if we follow them, rather than destruction. Aren't those desires just as corrupted too? Don't trust your heart. That's the second implication. And that then leads to the third implication. I told you there's four implications. Here's the third implication. That we should then submit our hearts to the judgment of God and his word. We should submit our hearts to the judgment of God and his word. How will we know when our hearts are are right or wrong? How will we know which desires are good or bad, where they need to be restrained and reined in, and where they need to be followed? How will we know how they're out of order and what's wrong with us? We go back again to Jeremiah chapter 17. Here's what Jeremiah said in verse 9. I read this earlier. Jeremiah 17:9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That sounds hopeless. But then the very next verse, verse 10, says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Who knows the heart and can sift through it and reveal what is good versus what is evil in there? It's the Lord. This is why Psalm 139 and verses 23 and 24 teaches us to pray. This is Psalm 139. Here's the prayer search me o god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting i need you lord to search my heart to know my heart to point out where it's gone wrong to show me your paths and how does god search our hearts how does he do this work Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says it's the word of God that discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. His word helps us to see and to to evaluate the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we submit our hearts to God. We ask him to search our hearts. We allow his word to expose the corruption in our hearts So we can see in what ways and to what degrees our thoughts, our desires are polluted by sin. So we can repent and say no to sin. All of us are corrupted by sin. All of us have desires floating around in our heart that should not be trusted, that need to be exposed and said no to. Again, in the category of gender and sexuality, we can think of all kinds of desires floating around in there. The lusts. The pornography, I want to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend, the homosexual desires, the gender dysphoria, all kinds of desires. And how is it that we know that those desires are corrupt? It's because of God's word that searches our hearts, that exposes the corruption of our desires in our hearts. So this is not to be cruel. It's not to be judgmental or hateful It's because God has created us. He's given us his word and we trust God rather than our hearts. And we know that God has designed for us to flourish like we said last week. So we submit ourselves back to him and ask him to be the one who judges our hearts. And then this leads us to our fourth and final implication. Our fourth and final implication, that in Christ, our hearts are redeemed. In Christ, our hearts are redeemed. So when we're sincere about our hearts, when we allow God to judge our hearts, we take a deep look into our hearts and we find that our hearts are so deeply corrupt, so evil. What hope is there for someone like me? Look at the condition of my heart. I mean, folks, if you could actually see into my heart and knew all the things I feel and desire and want and how messed up and disordered the whole thing is, where's the hope in that? And here's the good news. The good news of Scripture, that though our hearts are more corrupt than we ever dare to admit, God's mercy to us in Christ is greater than we ever dare to hope. Let me say that again. Though our hearts are more corrupt than we ever dare to admit, God's mercy to us in Christ is greater than we ever dare to hope. And while you and I were still sinners dead in our sins, Christ died for us. So when we put our faith in Christ, we are redeemed. We're rescued from sin. God forgives our sins and then The Bible uses a lot of different phrases and words to describe what he does. He cleanses our hearts. He gives us new life. He creates in us a clean heart, free from sin. He makes us new creations with new hearts destined to follow him. This is the good news, the hope that we have. And this redemption that we have in Christ, it's redemption for you, it's redemption for me no matter what those desires have been in your heart, no matter where the corruption has taken you and sent you in your heart, his redemption is big enough, his grace is big enough that he redeems you and he redeems me. Now in our next sermon, which will actually be two weeks from now because next week we'll all be off at family camp, but when we get to our next sermon in two weeks, we'll talk more about this redemption. How does Christ Redeem our hearts? How does he transform our hearts? And what does this actually mean for us as Christians when it comes to our ongoing struggles with sin and those desires for sin, those corrupt desires that we still find in our hearts, even as Christians? We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. But I hope that we'll leave here. This has been kind of a Debbie Downer sermon. Sorry if your name's Debbie. Okay. This has been kind of a Downer of a sermon, a bleak sermon a heavy sermon that you are corrupt and I am corrupt with sin by hope in the end that we'll leave with great hope, great hope in Christ who's died for us and for our sins, who's broken the curse of death and who we know has promised to return one day in final victory to free us from sin once and for all. So take hope today that though our hearts are completely corrupted by sin, in Christ, by faith in Christ, our hearts have been redeemed. Our hearts are being redeemed by Christ. And one day he'll return. He'll return and he'll redeem our corrupted hearts once and for all. So take hope today in Christ. Amen. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.